kids towards the back. They're following uh, their leaders to their classes. And as they do that, let me invite you to open uh, God's Word, if you brought one, uh, to Luke chapter 4. I'll apologize at the beginning of the message, my, um, my voice is going out on me, and so um, that might mean that we finish early. <laughs> we'll just see what we can do. Uh, I did bring some water up here with me. I remember as a little kid, the uh, churches I grew up in, you couldn't bring water into the sanctuary except for the pastor, and whenever the pastor would have that water right there next to the pulpit, I was always so jealous as a little kid, like, man, one of these days I can bring water in, right? Um, let me read our passage and then we'll pray. Luke chapter 4 and verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. He continued preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is God's word. Would you pray with me quickly as we still our heart before God? Would you ask him, as I pray aloud, would you pray silently and ask God, the God of the Bible, the God of creation, that he would speak to you very personally? God, we thank you for your grace, your love, your mercies are new today. And we've um, come in here, likely our minds and hearts going in a thousand different directions, and we ask that for the next few moments that you would still our minds and heart, that we may hear you. Holy Spirit, would you speak? Would you illuminate the face of Jesus? And Jesus, would you illuminate the heart of God? Would you convict of sin? Would you encourage those that are weary and weak? Would you heal those that are sick? Would you do all this through your word? You've promised us that your word will not return void or empty. So I pray that it does its work in my heart and ours. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been in a series called The Way of Jesus. Uh, now for this is our fifth week. And we've been looking about, uh, looking at the life of Jesus and um, asking this question, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to walk in his footsteps? As God has promised in scripture that he's going to continue the work that he has begun in us, conforming us into the image of Jesus. Well, how can we participate in that? What should our lives look like? And we've been walking around the triangle that represents these three dimensions of discipleship or three dimensions of, this, uh, of the relationship of Jesus up to the Father and in with his disciples, the church, and then out to the lost world. Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment was, he said it would be that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's that upward dimension. 
And the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor unto yourself. Remember that passage is uh, the story of the great Samaritan. And this guy is trying to get an excuse not to love his difficult neighbor that he doesn't like. And so then he responds and asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told that story to live in this outward dimension. And that's what we're going to talk about today. He would later say in John 13, a new commandment I have for you that you love one another. That was that inward dimension that we just, we just finished. So it is impossible to read scripture without noticing that our God is a missionary God. I'm sure God was happy up there in the Trinity doing what theologians call the divine dance of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, perfectly complete without us even in the picture. And yet, out of the heart of God came creation. And it says in Genesis 1 that God after he created things in subsequent chapters, and he began to walk with Adam and Eve, and he had this relationship with them, and then sin entered the world through Adam and Eve choosing a different way other than what God had laid out before them, and it fractured everything. And there's this beautiful promise all the way back in Genesis where God gives them this promise that there's coming a day, this promised one is going to come, and he is going to Restore the things that are broken. This idea of a missionary God, that God has a heart that is outward. Jesus said of himself that I came for the lost. I didn't come from the, for the righteous that need no salvation. I came for those that are sick. And as we approach this outward dimension of the way of Jesus, there's so much we could talk about and so much as a church that we have talked about. We've talked about people of peace and 8 to 15 and finding your oikos and theology of faith at work and how to share your faith and the story of God. I think the teenagers are learning now and, and, and we could talk about being a rescue ship and all of these things and these things really are great and they are tools in our hands. They're good tools to use, but here's the bottom line of all of this, that if your heart is not captured and changed by God, if your heart is not connected to the heart of God, then everything else, although you might discipline yourself to try to do it, it will not be authentic. It will not be real, and it certainly will not last long. So I want to talk about that, that this really starts with the heart. We see in Luke chapter 4, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. At the beginning of Luke 4 is the temptation where the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness right after his baptism. And we see that whole thing um, happening. And then Jesus returns and begins speaking with authority. And with that authority comes opposition says in verse 33 of chapter 4, and I'm not sure if I have this on the screen. And in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And we see this kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring, the kingdom of light, 
right? Pressing up against the kingdom of darkness. And this is what ministry is. Even for us today, it's us pushing this kingdom of light forward into enemy territory to recapture it for the king of kings. Just before this, Jesus made clear what his ministry was. This is probably a familiar passage to you. It says, this is the vision or mission statement of Jesus of why he came. It says in verse 18, Jesus unrolled the scroll, began reading, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That's the translation of the word gospel, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see this outward dimension of the heart of God? Proclaiming good news, proclaiming liberty to captives, setting liberty those who are oppressed, proclaiming again the year of the Lord's favor. This is why Jesus came. And as we look at the end of that chapter, the passage I read a minute ago, there's three things I want us to see. The first is this, is that as I follow Jesus, what's on his heart will be on my heart. What's on his heart will be on my heart. It says, verse 42, and when it was day, departed into a desolate place. This was frequently the ministry of Jesus as he was connecting to the heart of God. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. For I was sent for this purpose. I love that phrase. He says, I must. It is necessary. This is something that I have to do. This was the passion of Jesus. Jesus was really passionate about two things. He was passionate about God's kingdom, and he was passionate about expanding God's kingdom. There's over 100 references in 16 books of the New Testament about the kingdom of God. God was passionate about expanding his kingdom, not just growing churches, not just planting churches. He was the heartbeat of God, the heartbeat revealed through God, through Jesus, the heartbeat of God was that he wanted to expand the kingdom of God. In the end, so that all the nations will know God. This beautiful picture in the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where it speaks of how the end times will culminate of every tribe and tongue around the throne of God. We see this is where the universe is headed. Jesus was passionate about the kingdom and passionate about it being expanded. This word to use, phrase, this other towns means those that have never heard or not responded to the gospel. Jesus was passionate that people would know the love of God, the care of God. In Matthew 28, Jesus clarifies this passion. In Acts 1.8, he clarifies the other cities impacting where I am as well as, well as the world. 
Paul would clarify even further in Ephesians 3, saying that the local church would be the vessel that would display the grace of God like no other. This idea of mission or being on mission is not a program. It was the heartbeat of Jesus, and it should be the purpose of our lives. As we follow Jesus, what's on his heart should be on my heart. We probably don't have time for this, but flip over to Luke 15. This beautiful passage in Luke 15 that talks about the heart of God, and you've heard us talk about this many times, probably. Luke 15. This is a parable, three exactly, that Jesus is telling as he talks to mostly religious leaders around him about the heart of God. parable of the great banquet in chapter 14 and then he gets to 15 now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them and so he told them this parable and there's three lost things he tells the parable of a lost sheep of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and 99 are within the fold and one somehow has escaped and is, is, uh, no one knows exactly where this other sheep is. And so the good shepherd would leave the 99 and he would call all his friends together and then they would go and they would search for the one. It says at the end of that little section in verse 6, after he had found the sheep, he calls his Together as friends and neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so you get it, right? You get the story. But then he didn't stop. He tells another story about the lost coin. Luke chapter 15 and verse 8. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, loses one? And it means so much to her that she cancels her plans and lights the lamp and sweeps the house and seeks diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Again, Jesus saying, Jesus is giving us a glimpse into the heart of God. What makes the heart of God just overcome with joy? Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then the parable of the story of the lost son. Have you ever had a kid who was lost, physically lost? You lost them in a store. Ashley's mom tells this story when she uh, lost Ashley one time in, in some big department store and they start looking everywhere and getting all the workers to help and they're looking, looking, looking and they finally find her. One of the workers does. She's posing with the other mannequins, like dressed just like them and she's not moving. It's just so funny to me. Her parents screaming her name, Ashley, and she's like, I'm not budging. I'm a mannequin. What about having a son or daughter who is spiritually lost? In a season of rebellion, who've walked away? 
Jesus tells a story about the lost son, that there was a man who had two sons. The younger son comes to his dad and in essence says, Dad, I don't really care about you anymore. Would you, I demand that you give me my inheritance. In essence, he was saying, Dad, I just wish you were dead. I want to take from you. It's not about relationship. It's about what you have. I want to take from you, and I want to go make a life for my own. And the passage is, if we had time to read it, talks about him going into a faraway country and squandering his money. And the passage says at one point that he comes to himself as he's desiring the food that the pigs are eating as he's hired himself out to a farmer. It says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and I will go to my father and I will say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son to treat me as one of your hired servants. So he rehearsed his little speech. And he goes on his way home says in verse 20, and when he arose, he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, this is our excuse, his excuse before the father, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. It's an incredible picture about the heart of God. The son who was lost has now come home. I was meeting with a guy from our church just a couple weeks ago. He's had a season in his own life of wrestling with discouragement and doubt. And he asked me, he said, Lou, do you think God is mad at me? No way, man just waiting on you to come home I love this picture of the eagers the eager heart of the father here like leaning off the front stoop of his house to look and see when his son might be turning the corner topping the hill on his way home friends if you've wandered away from God don't let the enemy lie to you that God is angry with you the scriptures say that that in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. God eagerly awaits your return. He stands at the door and knocks. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, this picture of the God of the universe standing and knocking on the door of your heart, inviting. He's, he's, he's not waiting on you to invite, uh, invite him over. He's already come, and he's just knocking. Hey, man, you in there? I'm, I'm, trying, to get, I'm trying to get in. Would you just open the door, and maybe we could have dinner together? We've got a sliding door at our house, the pocket door, and it kind of shuts the kids' rooms off from the rest of the house. 
It's the best thing about our house. I never have a house without one of these again. So you can put the kids in bed and you can shut their door. And then you can shut the sliding door, right? Like double barriers of protection from the kids. And now the kids are so bold, they just bust out both of them. But when they were young, I remember Claire specifically, we would put them in bed. There must have been three or four. And Ash and I would be talking on the couch. We would hear this knock on that sliding door. Like, what is it? Oh, that's clear. We got a, what, what do you need, baby? Oh, I need some water. They're so thirsty at bedtime. Oh, my goodness, so thirsty. <laughs> Fed all day to drink water, all you wanted, and now you want. And, you know, of course, the excuses would keep coming, and then I would get frustrated. And I'm like, listen, this is time with me and your mama, not with you. You know, I'm done being a parent now. We'd get quiet, and then you'd hear the knock again, and I would be like, dadgummit. Like, what do I have to do, right, to keep you back there? Would you just go to bed already? God never answers us that way. He's never annoyed with us for coming to him. He's, the heart of God is this eager heart for us to walk in fellowship with him. And sin has broken and distorted that. And religion over the years has not been really helpful either because religion says you have to do all these things to clean yourself up. It was, it was the excuse of the younger son. Well, Dad, you know, I certainly don't deserve your love anymore. I've, I've offended you and I've sinned against God and maybe I can just, you know, be just, you know, like, you know, one of the servants. And the father says, that's ridiculous because you're my son. This is the heart of God for us. That we would walk in fellowship, not doing the right things to try to earn his favor. No, but Jesus did everything to atone for our sins so that we could walk in fellowship with God. Isn't that a beautiful truth? This is the heart of God. The bottom line is as, if we, as we follow Jesus, what's on his heart will be on our heart. And his heart was focused on other people experiencing the grace and love of a perfect father. Inviting the last, the lost, and the least to come to know God, investing in those far from God now, utilizing the normal rhythms of our lives to invite people into our homes or around our table, not because we display the love of God perfectly, but we are a fleshly example to them of what it means for someone to walk and to love God, to be forgiven, to have joy and peace. When we invite them around our tables, we are not just inviting them to have a meal. We are inviting them to taste what the kingdom of God tastes like. What the psalmist would ring out, to oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Most Christians don't live like this. We've experienced salvation. We now have right standing with God. And somehow, in some way, we turn from this outward heart of God to the lost world, to us pursuing comfort. The selfishness seems to creep up, and it's all about us and the others who are just like us, and we completely ignore the missionary heart of God. Vance Havner says it this way, 
I've used this quote before, normal Christianity has become so subnormal that normal Christianity appears to be abnormal. This is not just the way of the super-Christian. This is the way of all of Christians. We should have this outward heartbeat of God. What's on his heart will be on my heart. But more than that, my relationship with the world is dependent upon my fellowship with the Father. You see him. After he's done all these things, healing many in the passage right above this. In verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons came out of many crying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them. We see Jesus pouring himself out Yet the next morning in verse 42, when it was day, he departed and he went to a desolate place. My relationship with the world is dependent upon my fellowship with the Father. I told them in the earlier class today, most of us, maybe you're like me, certainly me, I tend to operate more like a camel, where I drink in the love of God, and then I just pour myself out until I burn out. And then my, my life is like, man, what is this? Am I even called to ministry anymore? I don't know what any of this means. I'm just completely useless. And then I just have to heal and get better. And it takes weeks. And then I drink deeply of God again. And I'm healed and my soul's refreshed. And then I'm like, okay, here we go. Another 30 days. Let's go pour ourselves out. But that's not, that, that's not how this was meant to work. Even Jesus himself, the very son of God. He was the one, Jesus. God created all things through him. This is the passage that Phil read earlier. Meaning that Jesus was the one that opened his mouth and the sun came out and the earth came out as we know it and the stars were hung in its place. This is Jesus in the flesh. And he knows that it is so important that he can't just pour himself out into other people nonstop. He's got to take time for his own soul so that he can connect his heart with God's heart. His relationship with the world was dependent upon his fellowship with the Father. That's why he said that he went into a desolate place. Mark tells us that this desolate place that he often went to was a place where he could communicate with God. So he kept pouring himself out. It was the cycle of being, his heart being filled with the love of the Father and then him pouring it out into other people and then being filled once again, with the love of the Father and then pouring it out into other people. And what happens to the people? They, they don't want him to leave. Of course they don't. You know, he's this, he's, he's urgent care that heals you. That's pretty awesome. You know, no, no, like go to the pharmacy, like, okay, you're healed. That's good. And so when he, when the people came to him again in verse 42, and they would have kept him from leaving, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. What do you think the greatest weapon in the enemy's arsenal is against the expansion of God's kingdom? Some people say it's the persecution of the church, but I, that's certainly not it, because where the church is persecuted, the church is growing faster than ever before. Some say it's the spread of false teaching. 
But it's crazy as the false teaching and gets more and more rampant, it seems like those churches that are denying the truth are the ones that are dwindling. I don't think that's it. I think ultimately it's the selfishness of the people. That we have, we have found the treasure hidden in the field and we think we're just lucky and we've kept it for ourselves. And this is not new. I read a story of Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus the other day. God shows up and what does Peter want to do? He wants to build a tent and just hang out there. Let's build a house so we can, you know, Elijah, ask him questions, the glory of God. No, God has created a people who he is revealing his glory to and a people that he's going to display his glory through. Psalm 67, how I end every marriage ceremony that I officiate. God blesses us so that the ends of the earth may fear him. If you know God as your father through Jesus today and here, it is a blessing. And it is a blessing that we should be extending to the rest of the world. So how did Jesus overcome this obstacle? Well, he just had the heart of the Father. His relationship with the world was simply an overflow of his walk with the Father, rooted in God's love. This is the only way to live a sustained missional life, is to have your heart captured by God. Rooted in God's love, as Colossians talks about it. Love is the only way a missional life is sustained. In the love chapter in Corinthians 12, what does Paul say? Without love, you have nothing. Leslie Newbican, this great missionary, said this, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. I love this. This is not us coming in and huddling up with God and saying, okay, now we're going to just go and do what we've got to do. No, this is saying, hey, Jesus is saying, hey, this is where I'm going. This is where I'm at work. I'm at work in the darkness around us. I'm at work. And one pastor calls that the redemptive edge. The redemptive edge where the kingdom of light meets the kingdom of darkness. That's where Jesus is. What was the main accusation against Jesus? That he was a friend of sinners. And shudder the thought, he even eats with them. This was their accusation against them. And he was saying, the Nubican quote, of course. This is, where, this is where he is. And church, this is where we should be. Again, that quote, the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is. And where is he? He's on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Man, that's incredible. Jesus is on that redemptive edge where the kingdom of light and darkness meet. This is where he's invited to join him. You ever had those uh, take your kid to work days? Where you bring your kid and 
They come, or even some of you do this. You come and you come to serve early. You come and bring your kids. And, you know, they're kind of just, this is what it's like to go to work with Jesus every day. He's like, hey, I'm going to the redemptive edge. I didn't come for the 99. I came for the one. And he's inviting us to come with him. The life I live, the last real thought here before I give you some application, the life I live should reflect the purpose I have. Verse 44, he says, so he kept on preaching. He didn't let them distort the mission that God had given him to do. The race that he was to run, no, he kept on preaching. The purpose of his life overflowed into the practice of his life. And the purpose of my life and your life is that through me, through us, that God would reveal himself to the very ends of the earth, starting with my neighbor, starting with my coworker, and then reaching ultimately to the corners of the globe. The practice of my life should reflect the purpose of my life. God has created a people whom he is revealing his glory to and a people that he's going to display his glory through, his worth, his weightiness displayed through your life. People should know the character of God because they've been close to you. Again, not that you're perfect, but that you've been loved and forgiven and given a new identity. When people get around you, that stuff should just ooze out of you because we've been forgiven that we freely forgive. Because God has so generously given to us, we freely, generously give to others. Because Jesus has laid down his life for you, we sacrificially lay down our life for others. The life I live should reflect the purpose I have. We are the people of God. You are God's plan to extend his love and his grace. Your neighbor really needs to see the love of God. And the heart of God is so desperate that your neighbor would know him that he sent you next door. He could have written the gospel in the sky. He could show up in a vision if he needed to or in a dream. Surely he could have done any of those things. He could have been in a burning bush. He could, God can do anything. But what did he do? He sent you. You know, I'm going to send Luke, and I'm going to put them right there. They're going to live there, and they're going to be the display, the trophy of grace in that neighborhood or in that office or around that cubicle or on that sports team. I'm sending you. God is doing this incredible work in the world, and he's inviting us to join him. And Jesus was obsessed with this. He was obsessed with being with people who were in darkness and bringing them into the light. Again, the charge against him from the religious elite that he was a friend of sinners, that he was eating with sinners. This meal was this incredible picture of friendship and he would just eat with them. Here's the question I think that maybe bring this into your own neighborhood for you. Is how do we grow in this? How do we grow in this 
outward dimension, following Jesus to the redemptive edge. How do we grow in this? Here's just a few practical things that I want to give you as we, as we close. One, it's important to remember what it's like to be lost. Many of you have probably been saved since you were a kid. Just by way of a survey, how many of you made a profession of faith in Christ before, uh, before you entered middle school? So before you were 11 years old. How many of you came to Christ before 11? Just raise your hand if you did. All right. How many came between 11 and 18? All right. How many came 18 and on as an adult? Incredible. A lot of us have been walking with God for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. We just don't even remember what it's like to be lost. We don't, we don't understand. We don't, we don't remember what it's like to wake up without the mercies of God. What it's like to wake up lost and confused. What it's wake up to live in the dominion of darkness. We forget what it's like to be lost. Ephesians 12, 2, 12 Jason really owns this passage, so I can very rarely share it. So, you know, he shares it. Ephesians 2.12, I love this passage. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. This, this phrase, having no hope and without God in the world. I've got some friends and some extended family members who are living in this, having no hope. So they go through difficulty and they, they can't ask for prayers because they have no hope. They don't even believe in a God. They have no hope. So they ask that we would send them good vibes. And I respond, listen, I don't have many good vibes. <laughs> You've been around me. There's not many good vibes. I will pray for you, though. Can I believe in a God who's not distant, but who is close? Who has the power to heal, to step in, to restore, to redeem? Do you remember what it's like to have a life without hope? I read a story this week of a man that was lost at sea. He went kayaking in Florida. Solo kayaking in the Everglades, and he didn't return. After a couple days, they started looking for him. They finally, they found his phone first. His bag had floated up to shore in one of the rivers. They pinged it. I love this. They pinged his last coordinates, and then they just descended the Coast Guard so that they could go and find this man, and they found him floating face up in a life jacket nearly dead, certainly in shock and hypothermic. And in the same way, God has sent us to people who are lost. Not that we're better than them. Good Goodness, we are not. We've just seen the goodness of God. We've tasted the goodness of God. And that should force us out to share it with others. We've got to remember what it's like to be lost. We have to receive God's love. You can't just whip people into this missional frenzy because it just wears off. 
This has to be something so genuine. Romans 5, Paul says it this way, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Poured into our hearts. Knowing and receiving the love of God seems to be the thing that Paul is so passionate about in the book of Ephesians. And Jason even mentioned this this morning. Paul wants them to know the love of God. He says in chapter 3 and verse 18, 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This idea of receiving God's love, this is that picture of Jesus finding himself in the desolate place, being filled back up only to go pour himself back out into others. This is why we have to spend time near the heart of God, pursuing the presence of God. When we get near the presence of God, two things happen. Once we're filled with the fear of God and we're struck with the love of God. The fear of God, that a God so big, so awesome, invites us in. As one pastor says it, in God's presence, we become right-sized. The God who spoke the universe into existence is inviting us in. And when we're overwhelmed by the fact that God is so great and so big and so holy, but he wants a relationship with you. He loves you, and not only that, but he paved the way where we could be in this intimate relationship with him. It's just overwhelming. We're filled with the awe of God and the love of God. And because we are loved by God, then we're able to follow his heart. He changes the way our heart works. When you get filled with the love of God, it propels you, propels you forward to share the love of God with those around you. 2 Corinthians 5 says that it's Christ's love that compels us. His love compels us. I love that. Come back to that passion in just a second. The next thing, the fourth thing, how do we grow in this? We remember what it's like to be lost. We receive God's love. We resolve that we're going to join God in his mission every day. This is the last part of that 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all and those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Resolve that you're gonna join God in his mission every day. This is the prayer of surrender and the prayer of alignment maybe you would say it, that you remember the first things. When you look up in the mornings and are filled with God's love and you surrender and you lean in to other community and then it propels you out. I shared this several years ago, this prayer of surrender by Andrew Murray in his book, Absolute Surrender. I love this. May not a single moment of my life be spent outside the light, love, and joy of God's presence. May not a single moment. That's incredible. And not a moment without the entire surrender of myself as a vessel for him to fill full of his spirit and his love. Church, we've got to resolve every day that we're going to follow Jesus at that redemptive edge. And then finally, and this is the last thing, we just got to take a risk. 
Some of us just need a nudge to speak up, just to take the risk. You got to step out away from your idol of comfort or apathy, your vision for your own life, and join in with God as he's at work around you. He has sent you on a rescue mission, joined into a local community of believers on this rescue ship, and this church is what we've, this is what we're doing. This is, this should be what describes our life and mission. The heart of heaven is for the mission of God. Hebrews 12 describe it as this great cloud of witnesses. Luke 15 says all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. You get this picture? It's like they're all just on the very tip of the edge and they're just like, oh man, go do it. Go, go, go. I'm that guy that doesn't like to take uh, risks most of the time. I remember being on being with some friends, we went camping every year up in Arkansas, and there was this, uh, you know, outcropping of rock that was probably about 15 feet up, but I thought it was 150 feet. And we're climbing down this thing, and my friend's like, hey, we should jump off this into the river. And my mind immediately goes to all the things that could probably go wrong if we do this. And I was like, dude, there's no way I'm taking that risk. No way I'm doing that. There's five of us. All four of them jumped. And I'm thinking, they just got lucky, and they missed the boulder in the middle, probably. But then, of course, you know, chicken start calling me names. Then they start shouting, go, 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 go. And, of course, I didn't go. <laughs> it's like, no, no way I'm doing that. No way. It's this incredible picture in Scripture of all of heaven. This great cloud of witnesses that have experienced the grace of God and seen God moved in such faithful ways across all of history. This great cloud of witnesses, it says, is on the edge and they're just cheering us on. And then all of the angels in heaven, same way, just kind of peeking over, man, I hope he says it. Invite him over, take him to coffee. Go, you can do it. Go, you can do it. Some of us just need this nudge to speak up to invite someone over, to risk looking a little foolish just by saying, you know what, God loves you. To brag on him a little bit of what he's done in your own life, how he's rescued you from the domain of darkness. And he sent you out and he's placed you in places of darkness so that you could be a light for him. This is the heart of God. What's on his heart should be on our heart. Can I invite you to take a risk? I want to pray for us. We're going to take communion in a minute, but just in the stillness of this moment, Phil's going to come up. There's probably some people on your heart. You know God has sent you to them, and maybe you haven't been as faithful to pray for them as you think you could have or should have. This is not about guilt this morning, not at all. But maybe you would just Start praying for them right now. I, I think everybody in this room, maybe you should have at least one, maybe two people that you're just going to say, you know what? I'm going to begin interceding for them in a very real way. I'm going to put them on a note card, type an alarm in my phone, some way that they're going to be coming to my memory. I'm going to just, I, I'm going to intercede for them. One, one hand in heaven and one hand on them. And I'm going to pray that God would do something miraculous, that he would open a door for me to be able to share the good news of Jesus with them. Surely there's two people in your life that you could think of or write down even now.
And I just want you to spend some time praying for them over the next minute. There's probably some in this room who aren't part of God's family either, certainly in a group this size. People who've been playing religious games. And this is an invitation this morning for you to actually step across the line of faith, for you to place your faith and trust in Jesus. I encourage you to do that today. Maybe some of you, you've done that, but you're like this prodigal son who wandered from home. You just thought you knew better. And the heart of God is just wide open for you, and he's inviting you. Would you come over? Would you come home? Would you open the door? I've saved the best stuff for you. Would you come home? God, we thank you for your grace. Lord, I'm so thankful that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Not necessarily your wrath or your discipline, but your kindness. And you're calling us even today that we would take a step of faith and follow you, that we would take a risk and you're kind of nudging us out of this comfort zone, that we would speak up for you, that share your love and grace with someone. Others that are taking steps of faith family today and still others that are coming home. God, do in us what you would want to today for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion here in a minute. You take as much time as you need to pray. I'll actually be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. The prayer team will be back there as well. Communion is this great ordinance that Jesus gave us the night before he was to be arrested. On the night he was arrested, before he started his trial, he gathered with his disciples in an upper room. He gave us this meal as a way to remind us that he is at work in and around us and that we're part of his family. And so we do this almost every week. We take the bread and dip it into the cup and partake of it, remembering that we're part of God's family. And as we walk back to our seats, we're remembering that God has sent us on mission for him. You don't have to be a member of our church to partake in this, but you do have to be part of God's family, desiring to follow in obedience to him. You do what the Lord has laid on your heart. Again, I'll be in the back. You come when you're ready. Communion servers are here.